welcome to the Stalk and I podcast for single women considering solo motherhood by donor conception. I'm your host, Mel Johnson, the solo motherhood coach and solo mum to a three-year-old daughter. For series three of the podcast, I've interviewed a variety of people who share their personal stories, providing a collection of different perspectives of paths to parenthood. In today's episode, I chat to David Watkins, aka The Dabness. David is a solo dad to his baby son he had using a donor egg and a surrogate. It's easy for us to think that it's only women who find ourselves in the position of wanting a baby and not meeting a partner in order to pursue that, and instead turning to solo parenthood. But David is testament to the fact that men sometimes find themselves in similar circumstances. I was really excited to hear David's story of his path to parenthood. David, so lovely to have you on the podcast today. Thank you so much for saying um, you would chat to me. Thank you. My audience is single women who are wanting to have a baby and most people who haven't met a partner to do that with so are pursuing solo motherhood. Um, And I recently saw your story um, as it was billed as the first person in the UK to pursue solo fatherhood through surrogacy. I'm not sure if that's factually correct or if that was No, that. that's a slight bit, slight twisting of facts really. So I I'm, not, I'm not sure where you saw that, but um, I'm the first, first guy in surrogacy, first single person in surrogacy UK, which is one of the major um, surrogacy organizations in, in the UK. Um, so f- first single person to do it through them, but what, what I would say one of the first in the UK to uh, have a child through UK-based surrogacy yeah. since yeah. since the law changed. So obviously, you know, there have been plenty of men who have gone overseas to have children through surrogacy um, in the past. But I would say since the law changed, I'm one of the one of the few who've done it in this country. Amazing, exciting stuff. So, do you want to tell us a little bit about you and sort of what led you up to the decision that that was what you were going to do? One of the sort of bylines they always use in these articles about me is like the quote, I always wanted to be a father. And if you type that quote into the internet, you get loads of men who have contributed to articles about their desire for fatherhood. And there's always this kind of generic, I've always wanted to be a dad line. And I don't really know what that means to me because I can't really pinpoint a time when I suddenly switched into needing to be a dad. But I also remember uh, when I was a kid being someone who felt very keenly that I was on the outside and that I was never part of the inner circle I was always felt like I was other or I was different so I I always from a very early age empathized with the underdog and I think that's what eventually brought me into teaching and wanting to be a teacher and wanting to um, be a role model for other kids and specifically to help those children in class who were struggling and those children who were on the outside or those children who weren't cool enough or funny enough or intelligent enough or whatever it was I had a real keen interest in, in supporting those kids and so because I felt like I always empathized with children I felt like naturally it would just be, it would it, it would be the next thing for me to be a dad you know like I wanted to be around kids all the time I wanted to impart my knowledge to children um I felt like I understood their pain you know because I, I was still in touch with that inner child in me the, the kid who'd gone through all the trauma that I did when I went through school so it, it kind of just all naturally led into me just wanting to be a dad from the outset really um unfortunately there was a little thing called my sexuality that got in the way of that so <laughs> being a gay man it wasn't something that uh I could just plan for at that time when I was a young adult and I think it just got put on the back burner really and it's something that because I really wanted it so much I knew that it, it could never happen I mean I didn't really go too much into the details of could I actually make it happen I didn't really investigate the surrogacy laws at that time but I just felt it whatever I would have to have done it would have been expensive it would have been difficult it would have been emotionally draining it wouldn't be easy so I kind of just pushed it to the back of my mind because I couldn't cope with the thought of fully acknowledging that I wanted to be a dad but then actually coming to terms with the fact that I couldn't. So I think sort of fast forward maybe another 15 years into my sort of mid thirties. And by that time I'd done plenty of time in schools and I was really wanting a change in, in my career or a change in the type of education that I was doing. But I did a, a, a stint of supply work in um, infant schools 
and year reception year, year one and year two, very, very young kids. And I remember there was one particular class that I had that was one of the best classes I've ever had. There was there were so many characters in that class, so many cool, oddball-y, weird, kind of funny, brilliant, fantastical children in that class that I just really bonded with. And I really thoroughly enjoyed the days with them. And at the end of the day, when they went home and they left the classroom and they went out to their waiting parents, I had this immense sense of loss and sadness. And it was particularly when I saw children being picked up by their fathers and meeting their fathers at the school gates that I suddenly had this intense jealousy, this absolute desire to want to be on the other side of the classroom. I wanted to be on the other side of the school gate. I wanted to be picking up my child from school. And I and once I experienced that, I couldn't not feel that every time I taught and every time parents came into the classroom and dropped their children off and every time they came in and picked their children up. And so, and it, it, it seemed to be particularly worse when there was some kind of physical contact with that child. So when the father would hold the child's hand or ruffle the child's hair or smile at the child or pick up the child and put them on their shoulders. There was something in that father-child physical bond that um, was very compelling to me. And I felt like I needed that myself. So that was the first time when I really knew that actually I was going to have to act on these feelings and I wouldn't, I wouldn't be able to put them, um, to hide them away anymore, really. So I started looking into adoption because I think that was, I guess, what I just thought that you did um, as a gay man. Like that was the go to thing. And there was a big play at the time. I remember in all in the media around um, it doesn't matter uh, what you know, where you come from, if you're single, if you're gay, it, what, what religion or whatever, you know, wherever you come from, you know, people everyone is needed when it comes to adopting children and what you need is a loving home loving family so I remember those messages you know coming through and I thought right adoption okay so I went to a couple of adoption evenings and I started getting into that kind of community really but I think I quickly felt like there was something in me uh, maybe you might call it a selfish gene perhaps that was screaming that I had my own biological child um and i just felt like i wouldn't be fulfilled with adopting and i also felt like it would be immeasurably hard considering you know i i know a few couples that adopted and their experiences and so i thought god i've got this real need to be a biological father to a child but i don't how, how do you do it you know how 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 can how can i make it happen um so at the time i think i was single and i think i investigated um whether or not you could enter into surrogacy as a single person and i think i, I found you know it, it came up that actually in order for you to enter a surrogacy arrangement you would need to be able to sign a parental order so i'm sure your your listeners know what a parental order is so you know that it, uh, that mechanism by which you obtain legal responsibility parental rights over over the children born through surrogacy so I kind of, oh, I can't do that, you know, and I was just like, again, I was like trying to push it, push it to the back, trying to pretend it doesn't, you know, I don't feel this way, trying to pretend it, it doesn't hurt, just trying to get on with my life. But still that kind of like, I, you know, I see kids in the street, even when I wasn't teaching, I see kids in the street, sons walking down the streets with their fathers, holding hands, or, um, you know, even the sight of someone loading a buggy into the back of a car would just like, it would be like a knife in my heart because it'd be like, I want it so much and I can't have it. Um, and I, I, re I really didn't feel like I wanted to get into a relationship just for the sake of having a child or just for the sake of going through that surrogacy process because I didn't think it, I, I, fe I felt it would be disingenuous. And actually, I was never someone who really needed to be in a relationship to be happy. So that wasn't my kind of go-to state. I was actually very content as a single guy. Then around about 2016, I had a conversation with an old uh, university friend and it was kind of tentatively discussing the idea of co-parenting. So here was like a mechanism by which I could actually be a biological father and, and still remain single, but do it in the framework of parenting a child with, my, with one of my best friends. So we, we talked about it for about a year and then we finally decided that we would go and do it. And um, 
I think my friend had probably given up on her journey to be a mum. So she was at the time maybe like 41, 42. And she didn't think it would ever happen to her. And she had had fertility problems as well. So we decided that we would have we would need to use donor eggs. So we actually flew all the way to Finland to um, create embryos with donor eggs. Wow. And um, we had double embryo transfer over in Finland in a clinic in Finland. And um, and then flew back to the UK and she uh, tested pregnant uh, two weeks later. Wow. Um, and then uh, almost immediately became ex- extremely ill with hypermesis. I mean, it was, I've never, ex- I mean, she's never experienced it before. It was absolutely horrendous. She was so ill. She was hospitalized. All sorts of things were, were going on in our relationship together as friends. It was such a testing time. She wasn't well. She wasn't well physically. She wasn't well mentally. It was just a really difficult stressful period all because of the sickness that was resulted from these in hormonal imbalances yeah so um during that process which lasted about that six weeks i came to realize that i had been naive in getting into that relationship and i had done it because i had panicked about never being a dad and i thought this was my only chance and we were both she needed me as much as I needed her. And we both felt like if we kind of passed each other in the night around this issue, we would never have our dreams. So we got together, but actually because of the stress of the illness, it created a rift between us and it revealed that we had competing needs and we had different needs. We had the one singular desire to be parents, but actually we had very different ideas about what parenthood would be like so very quickly it became very chaotic and she would come up with plans about what she wanted to do and I had ideas about what I wanted to do and I realized that what I had effectively done in entering into this co-parent relationship was I kind of signed my life away and I hadn't realized that even though they say co-parents 50-50, as the father is the man in that relationship, I, I, I quickly realized actually it wouldn't be 50-50 and it wasn't going to be an equal share because, you know, our baby was going to be living with her and I was going to get maybe an evening or two, you know, every other weekend. And that wasn't acceptable to me. That wasn't uh, what you were signing up for. That wasn't what I signed up for. And, but I was, it, it was out of desperation that we did it. Absolute desperation. And I thought, I, ha- I absolutely 100% have to be putting my child to bed every night and be there every morning and feeding that child every meal and teaching that child my views on the world and, and being a role model. And it, it has to come from me. I'm not, I'm not okay with it coming from anyone else. But... Uh, here we here we were in in this situation with a wonderful pregnancy, and not so wonderful for her because she was going through hell. Yeah. But this is this is where we were, and this we you know I was resolved to make make it work. Unfortunately, she had miscarriage, and then all the fallout from that, and the grief, and the loss, and the tears, and the pain, and for both of us, absolutely both of us, but also a release and a a chance to take stock and to reflect and to say, do we want to do this again? We had embryos left and months went by and we made the decision. No, that was it. We were not going to use those embryos. And I came out of that relationship absolutely 100% determined that I would be a single dad to my own biological child and I would raise that child myself. And so I started looking into surrogacy and I became aware at that point that although it wasn't legal at that time for a single guy to sign a parental order, the law was about to change and remedial order was coming in that would change the laws to allow single people to sign parental orders. So it all kind of fitted in and it was this huge horrendous journey of discovery 
where I arrived at exactly the right point that I needed to arrive at in the right mental state. And let me just add, you know, me, me and that friend, we are still very, very good friends today. And yeah, yeah, it was difficult. I won't lie. It was difficult for a year. It was really hard because we were both so scared and um, it took us to a place where we really couldn't have anticipated where we were going to be. It's really interesting, though, because I think the points you raised about co-parenting, you know, it, it it's not easy. Tr- making sure two people are on exactly the same page about how it's going to work and, you know, how, who gets the custody when and how you maintain that relationship. It's, I know. It's so hard. It, I was so... I was, I mean, I can say this stuff and my friend will listen to this and laugh because, you know, I, I was so traumatized about the specifics of the co-parent experience that even now, even to this day, when I support other guys who are wanting to be dads, I find it really hard to talk about co-parenting and to be objective and to offer it as a route to parenthood because i i find it really hard to find examples of co-parenting where it works and it does work but i find it hard to see how it how it has worked for some people out there and i've seen numerous documentaries and stuff online where they they followed co-parents and they it always seems to me that the guys look so sad they look so sad in these relationships they look like they're giving everything to this complete loss of control when actually they want to be dads they don't want to share they want to be dads and and they're sharing because they have to now i'm not knocking co-parenting and i know it does work for some people but for me it was it was completely traumatizing and i couldn't couldn't recommend it as a way to parenthood for the guys that i speak to primarily i speak to guys who want to be single fathers anyway so it doesn't really come up in conversation but it it just I think because a lot of the guys that I speak to, they don't want to share the role of parent. They want to do it themselves. So co-parenting wouldn't even be appropriate for them anyway. I think what you said at the beginning, though, is sometimes it's the only option. So financially or whatever, you know... (laughs) It, it seems like it's the only option and and so that's sometimes why people go into it but it's not exactly what you said it's not really giving you what you set out to do um there are i've definitely um got examples of where people have managed to do it and i think it's about the relationship they had before the detail they went into when they were thinking about it you know exactly how they saw it happening but so many examples of where you don't know how you feel so you can go into it thinking one thing and then when it happens you're like oh I don't I don't feel like that anymore I, I and you know I want to change my mind on what I said and, and that's what's really difficult because you can't anticipate always how you'll feel at the time yeah and I never like I never realized like quite how <laughs> I, it's like I kept saying no, I, I wanted to be a dad I wanted to be a dad but what does that mean you know it's like I actually I want to be more than just a like a dad in, in title I want to be like I want to be absolutely 100% the central figure in that child's life and if that child is staying over my friend's house you know half the week or five days a week what what, what are they doing over there like what what are they be what are they being taught what are they being exposed to what are the rules what, like what if I don't agree with those rules what you know it's it, it's just immeasurably hard for someone who absolutely has an idea how they want their child to be raised and then to try and manage that with a, with a, another woman when I think probably the law really favors mothers anyway in terms of I don't know settling disputes or where they feel the child's best interests are it was just a loss of control that I, I couldn't go through again but that experience of going over to Finland and making embryos and doing the IVF that was absolutely revelatory for me because it was the first time where I looked at a screen and I saw that I had created life. Absolutely, it was just a, a complete revelation. It was, uh, it was almost spiritual. Something changed in me when I saw those those cells divide. You know, I paid for that that embryoscope thing with the time lapse photography. Yeah, and it was just like this is where I want to be. This is what I wanted. You know, I am here to make life. I have to make life. It was like this. So however hard me. it was, then it got you to the point where you were like, right now I know what I need to do. 
So what what did you do next then? What was the next? Sorry, I've kind of yeah, I've detoured onto that. Yeah, it's all good. <laughs> <laughs> so coming out of that, so did some research and realised that wasn't allowed to do surrogacy because of being a single parent, but as being a single guy. And um, so I signed up to Surrogacy UK, but I decided to go for the an organisation rather than independent. So there are various Facebook groups and you know. Uh, communities where you can find a surrogate independently without any without it being mediated by a charity or a structure or whatever for some men and women that works because they sort of left to their own devices and they don't feel sort of hemmed in and they don't have to follow any particular protocol but for me being quite naive about the whole surrogacy world I thought actually I would appreciate the structure that um, an organization would bring and the fail safes and although they're not legally binding, you get to sign um, agreements with your surrogate, which just sets out very clearly what you both expect about the journey. So I signed up to Surrogacy UK, but they said, put in, put in your application. Uh, and it, there was a long waiting list at that time because they try and maintain a ratio of intended parents to surrogates, about three couples to one surrogate. They try and maintain that ratio in the organization. And when that gets above that, they stop applications being processed. So they said it's quite, you know, it's quite a high ratio at the moment. So the waiting list is about a year. So put your application in while you're waiting for the law to change. If your application gets to the top of the pile and the law hasn't changed, we'll keep you at the top of the pile. We won't be able to process it. We won't be able to accept you as a member. But as soon as the law changes, we'll, we'll let you in. And so that's, that's what happened on the 2nd of January 2019. The remedial order passed. And I got an email from Surrogacy UK to say, welcome as one of the first um, single members. There were other single members coming in with me. Um, but at that time, I was the first male member to, to be accepted. And then it was all about, here we go. Like, let's, I, let's find a surrogate. And so, again, being really naive, like, I don't know, how, how, do you, how do you do that? How do you find a woman who's going to help you on this incredible, you know, journey? and but the the system is set up so that there's various frameworks around interacting and socializing they have socials up i mean this is all pre you know coronavirus but numerous socials up and down the country and you would turn up and you would get your name badge and you would just mingle and you would talk to intended parents you would talk to surrogates you would talk to members of the organization and you just kind of get make a name for yourself really and raise your profile and quite, more, quite, it was like quite a stressful situation to go in. It's like speed dating. Yeah. I don't know, you know, if you've ever done speed dating, but you walk in with your name tag and it's like, what do I do? I've got to talk to as many people as possible. It's like, I want people to get to know me and find out more about me and try and bring as much as myself to it. But at the same time, you, you're walking into a room full of strangers. You don't know anybody. You, you're on your own. So you're not, that was the other thing. You, I'm not with a partner I can sort of turn to or lean on or you know in the awkward pauses between conversations or turn to and say oh god did, what did I come across like when I was talking to that but you know you're on your own you have to deal with it yourself yeah. the amount of times I would find an excuse to you know go to the bar or step outside or whatever just to like oh I need to stop I need to think I need to breathe because it was so overwhelming they had um like an online community forum where you could write a diary of how you were doing and people comment on your diary and there's like a network of comments. You comment on someone's diary, they comment on yours and then you go, you click on another person's diary and it takes you to another person. So you sort of quickly stamp yourself around all these diaries and people come to know who you are. And the key thing about Surrogacy UK is that you can't, say to a woman will you be my surrogate so if you do something like that that is liable to get you kicked out of the organization they're really strict on that protocol you have to wait to be approached by a woman so you you it's not it's not on you to go around selecting surrogates that you think you would get on with so it's really like you're kind of doing this merry dance waiting to get picked you don't have any feedback of how you're doing you don't know when someone's going to express an interest in you so you just keep going and, and you just hope that you're coming across as a likable guy that someone's going to want to but like 
there were no other single men in the organization no other single ip like me had come in into it before are women even going to want to work with a single man you know what this is completely new so whilst that was in the back of my head making me panic a bit i also thought well actually let's use that to my advantage because as much as there's an unknown element to working with a single man there would be actually women out there who'd want to do something new who'd want to do something that's a bit trailblazing true yeah well, how long did it take then it took at first because i actually um, met two surrogates so the first it, it, it happened very quickly for me it happened in about um four months wow you were I doing was, those socials well yeah <laughs> <laughs> it actually works that the surrogate contacts is the organization and the organization speak to you yeah. but i had been talking to a, a lady and uh, we've been getting on quite well and um, she actually then called the uh, surrogacy uk and said to me and, and then they called me and said we have a surrogate that would like to get to know you and so that's the next phase of the um, adventure is you start a minimum three month getting to know period where you meet their family and talk about things regarding, you know, what are, you, what are your expectations for the pregnancy and, you know, what are your non-negotiables? What are the things that you, you know, absolutely wouldn't consider? Where, where would you bend? What are, you, what are you flexible on? I started the, G, the getting to know period, the GTK, as it's the acronym, and um, it didn't work out, actually. So I actually ended it um, bizarrely, which if you'd said to me, at the, you know, in January of that year, you're going to actually meet a surrogate and then turn her down. I'd be like, no way. <laughs> you know, these women don't grow on trees. This offer isn't, this is like a once in a lifetime offer. You don't, you don't say no. You don't say no to a surrogate. Yeah. I did, unfortunately. Um, and it was, it was just a matter of time scales and she wasn't ready to try for a baby to, sorry to carry about my baby she wasn't ready for that until another year's time yeah. and by that time I was so exhausted with waiting uh, I mean, it was kind of a bold move on my part actually I think I must have been buoyed by some sense of inner confidence that I was well thought of in the organization and I had some feedback from people that my profile was very high and people liked what I had to say and so I felt at that time I can't wait another year to just start the process which could take a number of years if we're not successful I just can't wait anymore I want to go back out there and I want to find somebody who is ready to go ready now, now. yeah yeah <laughs> so that's what I did and how long and then three, three months later brilliant I met another surrogate and she was ready to go straight away. Amazing. So, um, because there's nothing quick about this process, then nothing quick at all. And that my um, my experience was unusual. I, I would say that people wait a lot longer than that. Yeah. And there are people in the organisation who've been waiting years to get that call. So, it you know it's it's there are lots of barriers towards. Uh, being a solo dad of choice really yeah. and one of the main ones is you really don't have any agency in it your ability to be a solo dad of choice is governed by the decision of a woman mm. you can't get away from that there's no imagine if to be a solo mum of choice you had to be picked by another man before you could do that and and it, it's so interesting because that's how a lot of solo mums feel that they had to be picked by another man and they couldn't find a man to be picked by. But then we have the ability to then do it on our own. So yeah. people's initial dream is that you meet a guy and have a baby together. But if you can't meet a guy, and I don't want to say picked by, but, but it, it, you know, that's sometimes how it feels. You can't meet that right guy. And there is a feeling quite often that, a lot of guys aren't looking for that sort of commitment and having children together. 
but your point is so good and really, really valid for the solo mum community to realise that then we are so lucky that this the next step is so much easier for a woman than it than it would be then for a guy. I mean, I remember like trying to research like how long would it be before you can like ha a baby could be gestated in an artificial womb and like how realistic is that? And it, because it just it's so frustrating. In order for me to have my dream, I've got to infringe and affect someone else's life so profoundly mm. that they have to go through a pregnancy for me. Mm. You know, it's not about uh, dispensing the the inherent role of the woman to carry a child. It's not or going against nature. It's not about that for me. It's like my dream has to affect someone else's family. It doesn't just affect that woman. It affects her whole family. It affects her husband. It affects her children. It puts her life at risk in order for me to have my child and so and then it's two like, women potentially because there's a surrogate and an egg donor did you correct is, yes set two separate people so i had two separate women who helped me to be a dad that's right i used a gestational surrogate so what she wasn't genetically related to my yeah. son but that you don't have to do that you there are many many surrogates who um will donate their own egg yeah so that is that is one route to it as well um and how did you choose the egg donor how did that work so i i was listening to some of your podcasts actually um the other day and i was listening to the one about egg donation and it didn't occur to me that you you could actually and sperm donation i listened to that one that you could actually get more information about the donor if you went to other countries and in some countries you could actually have a profile with a photograph and a recorded message by the donor wishing the child all the best and that you could import those gametes into this country and still have that information mm. so i had no idea you could do that so i i because of the uk law I could only select very, very basic characteristics for the egg donor. So I think it was hair color, ethnic origin, eye color, height, body type. Actually, you could you could select like three different body types, which I thought was odd at the time. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like you could you could choose by weight. Wow. Uh, yeah. It was mainly physical characteristics. Physical characteristics. And then you could ask if they had proven fertility and then you could select by like educational level. So there was just very few things I could choose. So I, I kind of agonized over, and it, it was important to me actually. You know, for some people they say, oh, it doesn't matter, it doesn't matter. It's like, it's a gift. And that's, you know, it, what's important is the egg and it doesn't matter what your child looks like. And, and I, and that's, that's fair enough. That's how they, come into their IVF and egg donation and sperm donation I understand that but for me it was really important at that time that my child looked like me yeah. and I had this fear that my child would not look like me and I would be looking at a face that I didn't recognize and more importantly my child would be looking at a face in the mirror that he or she didn't recognize and so I thought, right, I've got to tick all the boxes that relate to how I look. Yeah. So I remember it was black hair, blue eyes, Caucasian. And then I think I didn't mind what height uh, I put proven facility. And I didn't mind what level of education she had at all. That didn't bother me. And when they found the donor for me, and it was really quick because at the clinic that I used in London had their own egg bank. And they found the donor super fast, like within a month, they, had, they were ringing me with the donor. Wow. And they said, we found the donor, David, but uh, just to say, one of the boxes you ticked is she's not, she doesn't tick every box that you want. So I said, okay, what doesn't she have that I ticked? She said, she's described her hair color as a dirty blonde. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, what is a dirty blonde? <laughs> Brilliant. she hasn't washed her hair or what I, don't, <laughs> I looked it up oh it's like a mousy brown okay and I was like right okay oh well I was so egotistical I was like well it's good he's gonna have he or she's gonna have black hair anyway because you know I've got really <laughs> you know, really black anyway Mars turned out to have <laughs> mousy brown hair in the end so 
it didn't matter it didn't you know all the things that you think are important they kind of they're not important are they when when you have that kid in front of you they feel like the is... most important thing in the world when you're choosing them but then afterwards they 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 seem much yeah yes yeah. yeah. so then how so long she... did the whole thing then take in terms of coordinating all those things super and... fast so quickly um... so quickly i was i was so motivated i was on i was on the ball i mean as soon as that email from surrogacy uk came in i was like right i need to make embryos Right. Um, you knew I mean, what I already was doing with the embryos at that point. I knew I was. I mean, I, I had the embryos in Finland. Don't forget, I've still yeah. got embryos in Finland, but they wouldn't let me import them yeah. because a surrogacy is illegal in Finland. If I if I would have imported those embryos, I would have had to tell the clinic at least tell the clinic in the UK that they were going to be used in a surrogacy relationship in a surrogacy um, situation, and they. And I did have a conversation with a clinic actually in London at that time. And they were like, well, if, well, we will have to tell Finland that that's where they're being used. And if Finland found out, they would never have imported the embryos because they would not import them to be used in another woman. They could, those embryos were only, even though they were made of donor eggs, they were only allowed to be used in my friend. Right. Okay. Gosh. I still got these embryos in Finland. Um, so I knew what I was doing with making embryos. And I, I just basically thought, right, where am I going to, where am I going to do this? I had a great clinic down the road from me in Southampton, which were, were very good with, with a surrogacy program. But I actually ended up going to a clinic in London primarily because I wanted to choose an area of the country, which was easy to get to for any potential surrogate, no matter where she was. And I thought, well, London's got fantastic transport links to many parts of the UK. So let's go there. I, I chose a clinic um see our uh, center for reproductive and genetic health on great portland street and they had an excellent surrogacy program i was really blown away by their opening and the other thing that impressed me as well as their fertility um at their pregnancy rates was that in their presentation at the at the open evening they actually had put on their powerpoint about working with single men and they were the only and this was probably about end of january so the, the law had only been changed for about three weeks and they were the only clinic at that time who really had had an awareness that the law had changed. I mean, I remember ringing up clinics and I was speaking to people on the phone and saying, I'm a single guy and I want to create embryos. And I had people laughing at me. Oh, wow. I had a receptionist who laughed at me and said, what? <laughs> <laughs> like, never I'm phoning the clinic. <laughs> what? Wow. You're a single guy. And I heard her go, he's single. She was talking to her friend. He's single, and he and he's he wants to create embryos. So it's like, you know, forget stigma. We, it, it's not we, even on the radar. No, people didn't even understand that we could do it. No. So it's like because I spent a lot of time working with quite a lot of clinics on the images they use and the words they use and making sure. It's a really interesting point you mentioned about being on the website, like. I, they don't, you know, again, for solo mums, just the fact that the clinic says they treat solo mums is is a thing. You want to know that you're included in that clinic. And, and then, yeah, I mean, now there's a whole thing around, actually, it should be solo parents. Because um, I guess that a lot of the clinics are very at the beginning of that stage of um, yeah. information for guys. Yeah, so it was it's, it was really significant that I saw that they'd included me and I was like, yeah, like I want to work with these guys because they know what they're doing. Yeah. So in terms of timeframes, to go back to your question, so I must have contacted CRGH in January 2019. Um, they found an egg donor for me after all the tests because we had to go through all those tests and GP letters and semen analysis and um, genetic analysis and blood, all, all that kind of stuff. I didn't start filling in the egg donor form until probably end of February and they found me an egg donor by the end of March Wow! and I had the offer from the first surrogate in April and then I had an offer from Faye who was my surrogate now a very good friend in July so by July we had to do our three months getting to know so by July August September so by October 2019 10 months after the law had changed I had a surrogate who was ready to go and I had four embryos that were ready to be implanted. Wow. So 10 months. So that was quick. 
that was but they do the embryo creation the law had already changed had it anyway they before you did the embryo creation yes yeah yes the law had changed law had come into effect in january i mean there wasn't anything specifically preventing me from creating embryos yeah and there's it's it wasn't illegal for a single person to go into a surrogacy relationship i mean you could have done that privately and had some informal arrangement with the surrogate but the issue was that you couldn't sign you could never get parental rights and the surrogate would always be legally responsible so no surrogate is going to want to go into a surrogacy relationship if she can't get be divested of her parental rights so it effectively meant that you couldn't do surrogacy but if you had say um, a sister or a family member who would carry for you and didn't mind being on the birth certificate I think many men did it that way yeah yeah so first embryo transferred mid-november so Faye went through a month of injections to ready her womb and it was perfect thickness and everything was absolutely tip-top shape ready ready to host the room was ready the bed was turned down everything was just ready for that little embryo to go in they said right you should choose that one because it's the best quality and I was like okay there was one embryo which they said showed signs of some kind of twinning right. <laughs> and I was like put that one in put that one in. <laughs> <laughs> I mean at the time that was before I already had any understanding what it was like to be a solo dad you know I was like yeah I could I could do twins put yeah that one in yeah and they were like no no we we don't we don't want to put that one in we want you to put this one in. thank god <laughs> thank god yeah um so they put that that embryo in and um it took and she was pregnant and then nine months later miles was born my son how how did you feel when you found out um she was pregnant i was convinced that it wasn't going to happen i was stuck in the fear of the loss that i'd had and i was looking kind of with sort of hands over my eyes kind of peeking out through gaps in my fingers all the time going oh okay 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 but you know I felt like I think for the first trimester I was like convincing myself that it was going to be a miscarriage yeah and if it wasn't then that was a bonus (laughs) that's kind of the mentality I had when do you think you relaxed a little bit 20 week scan I think when they said it's when they said it's a boy and I think when I saw his skeleton and his little limbs move and he was bouncing up and down and he you know she said oh he's very active isn't he and jump you know jumping around the scan and I and I was like yeah so I think by the 20 week scan I was satisfied that he was going to come and and then a day later we went into lockdown so and all the trauma (laughs) you know but so how's it been oh my god I was terrified when he got here yeah because he's like you know you have this image don't you you have this kind of conception of this child that you've wanted all your life yeah and they're almost like this sort of um perfect like astral body that comes down kind of illuminated with like light and smiling and like porcelain skin and kind of just like side parting do you know what I mean (laughs) this kind of perfect image of a child you don't really imagine them as this screaming writhing Mm. wailing moaning aggravated angry upset baby that you can't get to sleep you just don't imagine that when you think of your future child so when that started to happen and when I went through the colic weeks yeah. which were absolute hell absolute hell and but you can't say that in our communities you're not allowed to say that you're struggling and you're not allowed to say that it wasn't what you thought it was going to be like mm-hmm. because there's this assumption that if you use IVF if you go through adoption if you go through surrogacy if you go through a really special and extensive way of having your child then you've got to be always and forever ultimately grateful and never able to say that it's hard and never able to say that it wasn't what you thought it was going to be like because you've just got to be this divine being of gratitude that's constantly saying how wonderful your life is now but the reality is it doesn't matter how you make your child or what process you go through to get your boy or girl it's bloody tough it's really hard 
and every parent struggles and i think if you're a solo parent it's like twice three times four times as hard yeah. especially if it's your first one so there were times when i would be posting pictures of me and my son on social media when the narrative was that i was having the time of my life but the reality was i didn't know what i was doing <laughs> i was like he's he looks like he's in pain all the time he cries he doesn't sleep he's constantly doubled up he's red faced they say it's colic they say don't worry they're not in pain but he's in pain you know and this kind of pushing through all the sleep deprivation and all the anxiety and all the worry it was a blur now i think about it and that whole, whole happened in three months and yes there were many many times when it was the most amazing thing that happened to me yeah. but it was still laced with this utter fear of is it going to be like this now forever i think this is such an important conversation because i think there's two things i think for people considering solo parenthood a lot of people say why did no one tell me this <laughs> never mind solo parenthood just parenthood like what people don't paint a real picture and it's sort of the social media thing isn't it like they paint this idyllic picture of how it is not yeah. the reality so for people considering it they need to be realistic on the reality but but the second point is we need forums where people can really talk about that and support each other and you know for solo mums I um, created two Facebook groups so we've got the Facebook group for everybody which is predominantly talking about for people who are considering solo motherhood but now we've got one called the solo mum support group for that exact reason because you need to have some other people to say is it just me or is anyone yeah. else just feeling this and I've got such an amazing personally and you know an amazing support from other solo mums where you do feel free to say this is how I'm feeling and it and and everyone's like oh I'm so pleased you've said that because that's exactly how I'm feeling because we can't pretend just because our route to parenthood was different and harder potentially um we can't pretend that everything is amazing when some things are really hard I actually think looking back now I think that the pressure to pretend that everything was like this state of nirvana was probably worse than actually dealing with Miles's particular ailments at that time it was this kind of pressure to to, to say it was a wonderful you know and it, and it and it was one it was wonderful because here I had a son that I had dreamed of all my life but it, it's the reality of that dream it's like this is a living this is a living human being this is a, a boy he's not he's not an astral body he's not a preconceived notion of your mind he's not a divine spirit he's you know he's it does more respect for him to say you are your own person you're a human being you're an individual and you're suffering right now because you're going through little baby things mm. that everyone goes through yeah. but it's like this is the reality of it. and it's hard because i'm your daddy and i'm the only one here and i'm doing this 24 7 and i'm exhausted and i don't really know what i'm doing yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and that's not because i'm a guy that's just no. because I'm a first-time parent. Exactly. No uh, one knows what they're doing when they're <laughs> first-time parents. Yeah. Um, so not being able to say that. And, and also I was doing it in lockdown. That was the other thing. Yeah. So I was doing it. And, and that November lockdown hit really hard for us because he was just coming up to three and a half months in that November lockdown. And he was going through a really challenging phase where nothing I did seemed to be right. And he used to be grumbling about everything. And if you picked him up the wrong way, he would start crying. If you put him down the wrong way, he would start crying. It was that kind of like, ah, oh, I can't seem to make you happy kind of thing. Yeah. Like with me, his only parent in the house, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, with yeah. some respite now and again from my mum and dad. Yeah. I have to acknowledge that because that was like oxygen for me. Yeah. But most, you know... And so it was just magnified by this kind of, there is nothing to do. There is nowhere to go. All our classes have been canceled. All our communities have shut down. And I'm not really establishing any of those communities anyway. And I'm kind of like, oh, who are you? Single guy with a child kind of thing. So that just made it a lot worse. So I did a blog, lockdown with your IVF baby, why you're not supposed to complain or something like that. And that blog, just kind of 
exploded really because so many people were like messaging me going oh my god like this is exactly how we feel and so it started a dialogue I think that some people hadn't been able to have before around balancing those kind of feelings of gratitude and challenge that, mm-hmm. that, that you have when you have your long sought after child yeah and I do this on like a daily basis try to find that balance between if you're on social media and people are following you because you're a solo parent I think it's important not to paint a fantasy picture of it so not to make out it's all joyful because then that's not the reality and and then if they sort of make a decision based on you painting that then they're like whoa what's this this isn't how you said it would be and then also not only focusing on the challenges so I always try to find this middle ground of saying yeah. these things are really good this thing I've struggled with but it's it's a hard balance to find something yeah and I think I, I took a while to find that balance too and I do think it's important that we have those moments where we celebrate we have those mm. um, Instagram pictures of smiles and all that you know that that has its place too and I and I still post those pictures because they are reality of where I where I'm at with my parenthood but it is that balance isn't it when I came to solo parenthood as a man um, I did do a lot of research especially around uh, sites gingerbread for single parents and other um, organizations and there didn't seem to be any kind of narrative around the successful single dad because a lot of these fathers were single through failed relationships or because they were they, they were going through divorce or they weren't single by choice. They were single by circumstance. Mm-hmm. So there didn't seem to be a kind of guide, guidelines that I could follow. Like, like where are the happy, successful dads mm-hmm. who had gone into this single lifestyle by choice? They, they wanted this. They, they'd, they'd asked for it. There, there was nothing out there for men like me. There was absolutely nothing. So you created something yourself. So that's what I tried to do anyway, because I wanted to fill a gap, I suppose, that I saw yeah. at that time. And so during that first lockdown, when Faye was pregnant and I was really missing spending time with her, being up there with her family and the baby, I thought, right, I've got to make some t- you know, use of this time. And I decided just to create a website, Dadby, which is basically all the information that I needed when I was going through it, not just in surrogacy, but also fostering and adoption, because it was an awareness that actually surrogacy isn't the only path for a single dad that you can be a foster dad and you can be uh, a, sing- a single dad through adoption. So it was just information, you know, explanation of terms, and technical terms during surrogacy or the jargon, those kind of things. And also more importantly, costing out expenses, like how much is this is going to cost? Because yeah. that's the other thing for solo dads by choice. Is I, don't, I don't know what, how much money women spend on becoming solo parents, but I would imagine it's a portion of what guys have to spend. Yeah. It's the IVF or IUI or sperm donation segment. I mean, of it. There's, there's a huge variety, but if you are lucky, you could have one IUI with donor sperm, which is certainly going to be significantly um, cheaper. There are women then who have multiple rounds of IVF. IVF, of course, yeah. yeah. Um, some who also use a surrogate so it it does then there's a a massive range but it can for some people Mm. start at the the much much lower end than than it would be possible for a guy so that's interesting as well because of course the remedial order didn't just affect men it also affected women yeah so this is now opened up a whole new route for solo mothers by choice women who actually can't carry their children yeah yeah, so I think the the barriers for men financially driven um, are, are much greater. Uh, on the whole, like I say, some women would you know still have to go down similar paths, but but many can do it um, differently. And so, what's the reaction been? You know, you you've shared your story quite a bit. Um, has it been positive? Has there been a mixture? How, how have you found? Yeah, that? I mean. Um... If you were to read any of the comments and any of the articles that I've written <laughs> or any in the mainstream press where they've reported it, you would see a huge amount of negativity towards um, 
what what I've done, what I what I perceive to have done. Primarily, it's stemming from how I've subverted the mother in the mother role and dared to you know raise a child without a mother, and the the vitriol and toxicity of some of those comments was really really quite shocking. Wow. Um, and all sorts of horrible things levelled at me for my selfishness. You know, I'd argue that I'm probably the most selfless I've ever been at this moment of my life because everything I do is for him. Yeah. Every single thing. But if you were just to take those articles and those comments alone, you know, it's it's quite scary really what people think. But in- on that, I, I interviewed um, Professor Susan Gollenbach for the podcast episode nine um, of series two. And she's written a book called um, We Are Family. And it's amazing, the book. I recommend it to everybody. And it talks about all different parental makeups. And she's a researcher and she's done loads of research on um, different families and what's important for children mm. in those families. And, you know, it's, it's so reassuring reading the research. And also she's asked donor-conceived children how they perceive the donor. And, you know, the majority of children explain that they see the donor as a donor um so they're interested intrigued maybe but most of them see them as a donor and so don't feel like they've been pulled away from them they felt like it was how you intended it as a donor yeah that's what the research um that she has done um shows so it's a very interesting book to read to um to understand more about how people feel about those different things i think that if we didn't have some concern or worry over how is my son or daughter going to manage not having a father or a mother, if you didn't consider that, you know, it's, it's, no, it's natural to, it's normal to, especially if you, like me, have come from a family where I had a very good relationship with my mother and my father, very positive role models. I, I personally can't imagine my life without a mum or a dad. And yet I am choosing to bring my child into this world without a mother. You know, I'm making that choice for my child. So there is, I wouldn't say that I'm even a hundred percent okay with that now. Yeah. Like I, I, I can't, I can't hand on heart say that everything's going to be fine. And you know, no, of course he doesn't need a mother and he'll be absolutely fine. Yeah. But who am I to say that for my son? Yeah. I, I don't know what my son needs. I, I can only give him who, what I am, who I am. Yeah. And, and I and I know after 42 years on this earth that I'm enough and I know that I can give enough love to my child and I know that I can be a solo parent and, and that will be enough for him. Yeah. But who's to say how he's going to feel about missing something that he's never had? I don't know. As you say, the research is that it, it, they do think of their, you know, these people as their donors only. But I think if you don't have that conversation with yourself, if you don't acknowledge that, you know, that kind of duality inside about, oh, I'm not really sure what's going to happen, then it's, it's a disservice to your child, I think, because you're not then open to have conversations. You get in this kind of fixed mindset. Oh, no, 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 it's fine. Uh, no, what, you don't need dad. You don't need mom. It's, you know, it's, I crazed you. It's me. And that's all you need. It, it's kind of like, I am, I am ready for those conversations with yeah. him. Yeah. But I know I, I know I'm enough for him. And that's so true. I think, again, all the research shows that it's about the communication and the openness and the understanding and listening to how they feel at every stage because how people feel changes as they go through different life stages. So, yeah, being open to it. And I was looking at a really interesting webinar that said um, one of the things to avoid is saying, but you're so wanted, you're so loved. Not to not say that, but to not have it as going over every other element so that's interesting yeah so wanted and so loved like stock phrase but i understand that you feel like this this and this because of you know your conception um so it's it's around um yeah not using it as the reason for everything Uh, and exactly what you said like shutting off any conversation saying well you don't need that um it's more about listening to how they feel and reacting to that so when you, if you go back to the question around um, reactions, so, you know, in terms of friends and family and 
everyone in my community. I mean, it's all been positive. It's been amazing. Yeah. He's absolutely adored by everyone he comes in contact with. He is the most, now he's the most smiley, happy, you know, people comment on how smiley he is out, out in the street. He's, he's just, he's just amazing. And I'm so blessed. And it is funny before lockdown, this lockdown 3.0, when we were going out and about people's reactions to me and him, people who don't know us, because the natural assumption is that when there's a man out pushing his child in a buggy, that that, that man has given the mum a break. And so I would go into shops and, and I would, first of all, I am immediately commended for keeping my child alive as a man. So I am given praise that a solo mum probably wouldn't get. No. So I, 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 I start off on a high. You know, when I go into any given situation, I'm immediately congratulated that he's breathing. Wow. Okay. So we have such low expectations for fathers in this society. It's unbelievable. Wow. Then I'm greeted with comments such as, is it dad day today? Or um, you give him mum a rest? Or, you know, just the assumptions pile on assumptions. And how, um, how do you address that? Do you, do oh, I just, let it go it's dad there? day. I say, it's, it's, do you know what? It's dad day every day. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, but yeah, we 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 really think that men are rubbish when it comes to parenthood, mm. you know. Not n- not least from those kind of comments, but also you go into some big supermarket chain, you go to their clothes section, and all those ju- you know baby clothes with like um, this way up, dad, you know, like arrows to indicate to the father how to put on the the baby grow whatever yeah. it is those kind of things they really annoy me yeah they really but i and i also think some men play up to it as well you know yeah because true. it keeps those men in that kind of role isn't it because if you identify as a caregiver if you identify as empathetic to children if you identify as someone who's good with kids that's like a feminine thing true. and so it's it's important that you retain your identity as like a masculine guy so it's in, it is interesting how those roles are laid out for people and how people willingly step into them Oh, I don't know anything about kids. Yeah, but what will be really great is, um, you know, your role in changing that perception and, you know, people being able to follow your journey and seeing, you know, you driving that change. Because there's so many perceptions I'm trying to change uh, in society. And I think probably you've got, there's even more probably um, for, you know, solo dads. And I think, yeah, it's really positive that we're in a place where we get to be able to try to change some of those. And, you know, if we can even just influence a few people to think differently about things and I think it's positive I think for men all they need to know kind of at at this stage is that they can do it that it's possible this is now a valid route they can actually have their child their way on their terms you know they don't have to compromise there is a certain element of compromising when someone else is carrying your baby You, you have to it's your baby but but her body so you need to let her do her thing and whatever makes her feel comfortable. But ultimately, it's, it's, it, the process is going to give you autonomy down the road. You know, I, I never thought that I'd be able to be 100% in control of my own child. You know, you just, it's just a, it's a dream come true. It really is. I never thought it would be possible. But it just, for me, it, 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 all these milestones happened at the right time. And I just landed, landed at this point on the planet at this time in this country it's hard I, I i think i don't it's not easy it's not easy finding a surrogate or a lady who's going to help you it's really difficult you can put everything in place i know men who are waiting they've they've put all the money down mm. they've remortgaged their house they've created their embryos they've got the spare room ready they've applied to the organizations they've been accepted and they're just waiting 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 and months and months and months and months go by and you know that's that's the nature of the beast i'm afraid it's not you know there is a point where um you your your route to parenthood is going to be completely controlled by a woman you you cannot really be you cannot be a solo dad by choice without approval and acceptance and authorization from a woman mm-hmm. and that's just biology <laughs> yeah. um but it is interesting how that's 
you know that's different for solo moms yeah um, I, I just think it's a really fascinating uh, view because I know so many of my audience wanted to become a parent with a partner and felt like they weren't fully in control of it uh, but actually they are fully in control of bec becoming a parent if they can access donor sperm uh, but for a guy you're right it's it's so much more difficult fascinating stuff well thank you so much for chatting to me it's been so interesting hearing about your journey if people want to know more where can they find you i think you've got an instagram account haven't you what's that yeah so yeah you can follow me and uh, miles on our instagram account that's the dadness uh sorry the underscore dadness d-a-d-n-e-s-s and um, there's also a link there to my website which is dadby.uk which is kind of i guess like a one-stop shop for any you know all issues around being a dad becoming a dad for a single guy yeah so those are the, the two main avenues to find me and explore what it means to be a single dad in this day and age great well thank you so much it was lovely to chat and i really look forward to following the rest of your experiences thank you thank you for having me really good appreciate it if you've enjoyed this episode of the stalk and i podcast i'd hugely appreciate if you rate review and subscribe i look forward to seeing you again next week